Welcome to another episode of the Symposium Podcast. My name is Alex Apicella. And I'm Martin Ibarra-Ramos. Every week we invite a member or collaborator of Symposium to curate and present a film or films for remote viewing. If you follow our Instagram account at Symposium and or our Twitter account at Symposium, you'll be able to keep up with us on our episodes published every Thursday, along with calls for audience questions and additional content related to the films that we discuss. In last week's episode, Reed Williams presented two shorts directed by Casper Kelly, Too Many Cooks and Final Deployment 4. Check out the episode if you haven't had the chance yet. Reed gets into a fascinating and timely topic, and it's definitely uh, one that offers a lot to think about right now. And uh, next week, we'll have one of two options for our episode We're still that's still in the works, but uh, that's going to be coming out next Thursday as well, so be on the lookout for that. But for this week, Alex and I are inviting a guest curator, our first guest curator on the show, and fellow film graduate student at UCLA, Chris Janney. So without further ado, we'd like to invite Chris to share his presentation. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Martin. Hey, guys. So I'm going to be talking about the Peter Jackson documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. This was a film that came out in 2018, and you may have seen it, but you're probably more likely to have heard about it and heard how groundbreaking and innovative it was, but may have not actually got the chance to see it. So first of all, I just want to talk about what the story is about. They Shall Not Grow Old is a documentary that is told about the perspective of World War I from a regular British soldier. But the thing about this documentary that makes it so groundbreaking is it's not just a smart collection of clips and interviews. What Peter Jackson did was take the old footage and transform it into something new altogether. This project started actually a few years before 2018 when the Imperial War Museum had reached out to Jackson about putting this project together. For those of you who don't know, American viewers, the Imperial War Museum is in London, England, and it basically is a massive catalog of Britain's war effort during uh, the First World War and the Second World War, where obviously hundreds of thousands of people each war um, died. Almost a million um, British and Commonwealth soldiers died in the First World War. So a little bit unlike in the United States, as, as probably we, we know, World War I is a much, much bigger deal for European countries. And this is no exception for Britain. So they reached out to Jackson and he was happy to put the film together, but he had to think about how to make this groundbreaking. What they, what they kept telling him was, we want something that's going to really redefine what documentary filmmaking can do. And for those of us who've maybe seen old footage, especially from the early 20th century, we see it's very grainy, it's very black and white, there's no sound, and even the speed of people seems very strange. They're walking around kind of like these kind of Charlie Chaplin, almost comedic figures in some ways. And it really puts this huge gulf, this very big emo emotional gulf between us and these people. And I'm talking about kind of 1900s, 1910s into the 1920s. And so what Jackson thought about was how to humanize the people in this story and how to sort of change the narrative in a way where we're actually getting a sense of who these people are. So one of the things he started to do was look at the footage that existed from back then and recalibrate the speed at which the footage played. So a lot of these old films, they originally had certain sprockets that you put in a, put in a reel and played the film at a reasonable speed. But as time, uh, as time went on and, and the films, um, the physical quality of the films actually changed a little bit, that sort of screwed some of the stuff up in how we would see it later on. 
And not only that, but film projectors in the 1910s, World War I, were hand cranked. So you had to crank the film at a certain speed to get it to play correctly. And if you input film incorrectly in the later 20th century at perhaps the wrong speed, you would get this, this very jerky kind of um, stop-start feel to people's motions. So what he did was, he, with his massive, massive post-production editing suite, and we can, we can imagine the type of post-production editing suite that Peter Jackson would have in, in New Zealand, uh, is he started by recalibrating the speed of the footage. So actually working through the clips and, and slowing or speeding up the rate at which people were moving. And what this did was give ultimately a very, very naturalistic sense of movement to the people in the film. So now it didn't look like we were watching kind of silly Charlie Chaplin figures from the 19 teens. It looked like maybe we were watching silent era footage from World War II. And there's plenty of silent era footage from World War II where people are moving at regular speeds. The next thing that he did was a huge coloration project. So coloring this footage and really going in to try to figure out not only what things may have been in terms of color, but doing immense research. So he spent a lot of time walking around Flanders, uh, which is Northern Belgium, where a lot of the, a lot of the fighting, at least for the, the British took place and getting a sense of even just the particular shades of green in that part of the world and getting a huge stock of World War I uniforms and figuring out, okay, um, the German uniforms, for example, they weren't just gray, they were um, something called Feldglau, which was a greenish gray sort of mix, getting really, really specific in these, these details. All right, so we've got footage now that's colorized and it's got people moving in regular speed. But the other thing that he did too was he then started working with a sound post-production team where they would add in sound effects, not only just cannons firing and minds exploding and all this, but the sound of a man putting on webbing. Webbing are sort of the straps where you carry your ammunition belts and you kind of, you know, put that over your uniform or the sound of uh, clinking weapons and gear and helmets and all of the little squeaking sounds that you make if you're carrying 50 or 60 pounds of equipment and a rifle. The sound of what a person's feet would, would, would sound like if they were wearing kind of the shoes of the time, which again, weren't quite modern combat boots. They were obviously better than regular shoes, but they weren't quite modern, the, the footwear that soldiers at the time had. Uh, you know, what would that sound like if you were wearing those type of shoes and marching through really, really heavy, sticky mud? There's a very specific sound that that's gonna make. And then even when they were recording the sound of cannons, they wouldn't just say, all right, we're gonna pull cannon stock sound effect 57 from some big Hollywood library. We're actually gonna go to uh, an artillery range where the our New Zealand army will be firing howitzers and will record them firing those, those guns. Um, and in a couple of cases, they had original World War I guns so that you had the correct sound for the correct caliber of, of gun. Uh, so you throw in the sound effects then, but we're not done yet. There's also the notion of camera angles, right? So filmmaking was very, very primitive in the, the early 1900s, and the camera was still a very, very new concept. So you'd have filmmakers, right, guys with cameras on, on wooden tripods, and they'd go out, and often what they would do is they'd set this thing up, and they'd kind of just put the camera in front of a scene, and then they would just start filming it, almost like you take a photograph, but just instead of it being a still image, people are moving around. Or maybe what they might do is they might do a really simple pan 
or, uh, you know, where they might just kind of, okay, we'll get a pan of what's going on. And then that's kind of it. And that was about the extent to which the camera work was, was sort of in existence, which by our standards today is very, very, very simple. Not only that, but because cameras were so new, right, even for people living in what at the time was an industrialized modern country, soldiers may have seen film, so they would be aware of what a movie was, but they may have not even seen a film camera in their life before. So seeing a film camera was this big thing. And if you, and if you look at a lot of old footage, right, it's pretty common to see the camera's existence really weighing on the minds of the people in that shot. There's a lot of people kind of talking to each other and pointing at the camera and waving at the camera. Uh, you see it certainly in the occasional uh, city shot. So people, again, not just World War I, but filmmakers did this in the 19, early 1900s, 1920s, right? Not only in Western countries, but also Japan a little bit, where they would set a camera up on a city street and just film people walking down the street. And it's very common to see people very, even if they're not smiling or waving, you can clearly see that they're aware of the fact that a camera is there and they're kind of looking to see, see what's going on. So this was the case for British soldiers, right? They wouldn't think it was some strange device, but they'd be waving and telling everyone, you know, hey, look, there's a camera. Let's all, let's all smile for the camera. And so it was, so, so Jackson talks about how it's, it's hard to get that feeling of just witnessing what's happening like you're there because people in the, in the film are so often just stopping what they're doing to take note of these filmmakers. But you do still get footage somewhere, almost like a home movie, where maybe people are still playing up for the camera, but they might still be going about doing their, their daily business. And you'd use, you'd use shots like this. And what he did was take digital um, techniques of being able to push in on the frame and then have some sense of motion of being able to do something like a close-up or something like a, um, a pan. I, I realize I'm, I'm not great in the producing program with using the term pans. I know people use that way too much and there's a very correct definition. So Paul, apologies for that. But, um, but what, he, what he was able to do then was get a better sense of um, camera work that we as modern audience was, would kind of identify with. So actually introducing a notion of something like a close-up, where you're actually maybe zooming in on just one or two people and you're getting their expressions as they're sort of looking at the camera. And that is gonna bring out a lot more um, emotional feeling than if you were looking at a static shot of 50 people in a field all standing together and waving from 50 yards away, which is what a lot of the original footage might've looked like. And then finally, there is the topic of voices and accents. And this is in some ways, some ways the biggest aspect of the film. I'll address the smallest point first, which is actually doing almost what would be ADR for the voices of men in the film. So in some of the footage, you see people clearly talking. You see men clearly saying things to each other and it's silent, so we don't know what they're saying. But from lip reading, we can, kind of figure it out. We can figure out they're saying, hey, look, there's a camera over there or all right, third company, head down that trench and get yourself set up or whatnot. And so what, uh, what the filmmaking team did, what Jackson's team did was they figured out where they could do some of this lip syncing. And then they actually figured out what was the region of England that this particular unit came from. 
And then what they did was find someone who had or could do that specific regional accent. So it's just like the United States, right? A, a unit from Boston, the men in that unit are gonna have a very different accent from the men if they're in a unit from Texas or if they're in a unit from Minnesota. And the same case is from England. If you're in the north of England or the west of England or from uh, London, and there are a bunch of accents in between, the, you, there, there's a very, very vari wide variety of accents. And for American viewers who are fans of, let's say, Downton Abbey even, you, you can notice there that there are, there are a wide range of English accents, Welsh accents, Scottish accents. Um, and so that's what they did to start. So there's not a ton of uh, dubbing in the movie with where you see uh, voice actors kind of per saying the lines of what it would look like these men in real life are saying. Uh, but there is definitely some of them. But this is all the footage. So this is what we're seeing. We're seeing this colorized footage, better camera techniques, naturalistic uh, motion of the people. But what we still don't have is the voices of the soldiers themselves. Now, obviously, that was too hard to get. There, there's just there's not sound footage from that period of time in a way that you could build out a film. But what we did have, there was a lot of recording of World War I veterans back in the 60s and 70s that was done by the Imperial War Museum as sort of a historical project. So what this meant was obviously veterans at the time would have been, they would have been men at this point in their uh, 60s, 70s, and, and maybe, maybe into their early 80s, but a lot of them would have been in their 60s and 70s, also because so many of them were so young when they joined up. And because of that, they're obviously elderly, but they do still have uh, a pretty good sense of what's happening, and they're pretty clear in their mind of the events as they saw them. So, and there, there were hundreds of hours of these interviews that were done in the 60s and 70s mostly. And so what the Jackson filmmaking team did was then go in and they made the decision that they the only sound that we should hear, the only voices that we should hear should be the voices of the men who are actually involved in the conflict. Uh, that that was very, very important. We're not going to have talking heads with modern historians. We're not going to have the grandchildren of so-and-so sitting, sitting in a chair somewhere in a studio, right? We just want to hear from the people who are actually there experiencing this event what their views on it were. And so the only voices you hear are the voices of actual World War I veterans when they were still alive in the, from the 60s and 70s as the narration in the film. So you put all of this together and it creates a very, very extraordinary viewing experience. In my opinion, at least when I was seeing this in the theater, I've, I've seen the film twice now, I felt like I was watching footage that maybe would have been around the level of what you might see from either very late World War II, the Korean War, or possibly really, really early Vietnam, almost like early 1960s, in terms of the level of humanization. And I was just shocked by how humanized the people in the film were. Uh, they didn't really seem like black and white figures kind of marching around a, a, a set. They just seemed like they're very much, very much people who just happened to have been living about 100 years ago. And in the scheme of history, 100 years is not, not that long. So the other thing, finally, also in, in crafting this narrative was taking all these components and then telling a story that wasn't a documentary per se. So it wasn't about, 
this battle happened at this time and there were these many casualties and then uh, the prime minister of Britain passed this ordinance and then this unit was sent here. It was taking all of these segments, all of these pieces of storytelling that the men gave and assembling a narrative that basically took you through what an average British soldier on the Western Front may have experienced from where he came from, joining up, going through basic training, getting deployed, going into combat, and then coming home. And so in that sense, the film is, I almost, almost sometimes I'm hesitant to call it a documentary as more it's a, it's an experience of you seeing and feeling what a person or group of people were going through at a time. But the techniques in which this is done is very much a narrative filmmaking technique, at least in my opinion. It's less of a documentary filmmaking technique. And ultimately what this does is it brings history to life and it humanizes people. Because even with a movie, even with a Hollywood movie about war, you still in the back of your mind, you know you're watching a movie and you know you're watching actors playing roles, however unbelievably accurate that may be. But here you're actually seeing real people. And you're seeing real people in many cases, many of whom never came home. So there's that added level of gravitas to what you're witnessing. So just to wrap up, I, on this occasionally, I tutor students in history. And one of my two undergraduate majors, actually at UCLA as well, was in history. And it's very important to read books. It's very important to read books and to understand the human experience through large amounts of knowledge that we can access. But it's very, very important as well to understand the human toll and the human experience of all of these things that happened in the past. And I've certainly found the more that I can understand that, both good and bad, the, the more I'm drawn to learning about these things. And it's not as dry and boring. And it really, a movie like this really helps close that gap. It really takes something that could just be dry and boring in a textbook, and it actually brings it to life for you. So I would say, first of all, I highly recommend seeing this. First of all, for anyone who's an amateur historian or just interested in military history or an aspect of kind of human history in the past, and then what I'm also very curious to see is if any other reconstructive works like this are going to be done in the future, especially for footage from the first third of the 20th century, because this is a great place to start. British soldiers in World War I, but there's also so much other footage out there about so many other people around the world. Now, of course, for the early 20th century, we don't have footage of everyone, and there are obviously certain areas that are going to be more covered than others. But nonetheless, there's still a good amount of footage out there, probably more than we think. And I'd be very curious to see what other stories can get drawn up and created now that Jackson's set such a high bar for the notion of reconstructing the past through film. So thank you very much. That's really fascinating, Chris. And um, I, I have to agree with um, a couple of things you said there. I think that uh, using film and applying it to different areas of, of research and education. I think that speaks to the value of film and certainly to the value of film education. So I think that was, that was a great point that you made there. And um, this, I haven't seen this film myself yet, but I think that it's, um, it's certainly when I saw the previews, it looked uh, like a really fascinating uh, 
practice of archival based documentary. And um, I, I think that I'm even more now um, interested in finally seeing this. I'm, I'm sad I couldn't see it in the big screen and in immersive sound, but I, I certainly uh, will check this out very soon. So that was great. Thank you so much, Chris. We're excited to see the film this week. It, it's honestly like it's probably like one of the most impressive documentaries technological wise that I've seen in the past few years. Um, and I hope that everyone's able to check it out. Thank you to everyone who tuned into this episode of our show. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our show on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find the link to our profile page on Anchor on our Instagram bio. And please follow us on Instagram at Cineposium and on Twitter at Cposium. If you have any questions related to our presentations, feel free to DM us on either platform and we'll address them on our next show. If you're interested in subscribing to our weekly e-newsletter, email us at cineposium.ucla at gmail.com. Thank you all again for listening, and until next time, take care, everyone.